Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. So even though we're in silence, um, um, I'm going to speak in the same way that Miriam was singing so beautifully. Uh, and I encourage you just to take in uh, what I'm offering. Um, maybe while I'm speaking, you can just inhale it in. And if there's anything I say that uh, you don't agree with, uh, just forget about it. <laughs> and, uh, and then later in our group discussions... Um, we'll have time to talk about uh, a lot of these things in detail. Um, so we won't have a sort of uh, a discussion period around what I'm going to say right now. Uh, first, though, I wanted to, to dedicate uh, this talk, which I like to do from time to time, to a wonderful uh, neurologist and uh, writer uh, who died this year uh, named Oliver Sacks, who died just uh, about two months ago. Some of you might uh, know his books. Uh, one of his uh, works, the book Awakenings, was turned into a wonderful movie with uh, Robin Williams, um, who's also not with us anymore. And um, uh, uh, the man who mistook his wife for a hat. <laughs> um, <laughs> Anyways, uh, Oliver Sacks was, um, <clears throat> he died at 82, and um, uh, he, he was born in London, and uh, born into a Jewish family. Both his parents were physicians. They had their office in his house, which uh, he became obsessed uh, with all their instruments, which is maybe how he became such a nerd. Um, and... Uh, and his, his grandfather uh, <clears throat> was a, a kosher butcher, uh, which we had just been talking about. Um, uh, I had I just asked Miriam, I just got a new dishwasher. And my dishwasher came with two drain hoses, saying if you don't know how to install two drain hoses, just ask your local rabbi. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not joking actually I actually took a photo to show her because I couldn't believe it so anyways I asked her she had no she wasn't trained in this um, so then after I asked her what's involved in becoming a rabbi that can actually bless the slaughtering of animals so um, we're still working on both of these things together anyways um, 
uh, one of the things I love about Oliver Sacks' work is that he can find individuality and uh, authenticity and a unique voice um, in people who are so damaged. And I think that was like this gift that he had that was amazing. And um, He also had some damage in his life. He, he had terrible migraine headaches that he suffered from. Uh, he went to a boarding school where there was a lot of abuse. Um, and then in his late teens, he told his parents that he might be gay. And they called him an abomination uh, to himself and the family. And um, one thing that I found very interesting in his life is after that happened, he self-imposed celibacy uh, for more than 30 years. And it wasn't until his, in, 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 he was in his 60s um, that he actually started to, to uh, date, even. And um, um, his brother was uh, diagnosed with schizophrenia. And so you put all this together and you can kind of start to see, you know, why this, this tender, I say nerd, um, uh, had so much feeling. Uh, for kind of the human, uh, kind of the, the tragic dimension of human life. Um, <coughs> I heard uh, him speak a couple of times, and um, I don't know if any of you have ever heard him, him speak, but he, he goes back and forth between being a quite big and in a, in a way almost a bit boisterous, and then this very shy little boy. And he's, he's sort of both people at one time. It's kind of beautiful. So anyways, uh, just before he died, um, he, uh, he wrote an op-ed piece in the New York Times. And so I wanted to, to read you a few, a few parts of this. I feel grateful that I've been granted nine years of good health and productivity since the original diagnosis. But now I am face to face with dying. The cancer occupies a third of my liver, and though its advance may be slowed, this particular sort of cancer cannot be halted. Over the last few days, I've been able to see my life from a great altitude, as a sort of landscape with a deepening sense of the connection of all its parts. But this doesn't mean I'm finished with life. On the contrary, I feel intensely alive and I want and hope in the time that remains to deepen my friendship, say farewell to those I love, write more, travel if I have the strength to achieve new levels of understanding and insight. I've been increasingly conscious for the last 10 years of deaths among my contemporaries. My generation is on the way out, and each death I have felt as an abruption a tearing away of part of myself. There will be no one like us when we are gone, but there is no one like us, like, but there is no one like anyone else ever. When people die, they cannot be replaced. They leave holes that cannot be filled, for it's the fate, the genetic and neural fate of every human being to be a unique individual, to find his own path, his own life, and to die his own death. I can't pretend that I'm without fear, but my predominant feeling is one of gratitude. 
I have loved and been loved. I've given much and I've been given and I've been giving something in return. I have read and traveled and thought and written. I have had an intercourse with the world, the special intercourse of writers and readers. Above all, I've been a sentient being on a beautiful planet, and that's been a privilege and an adventure. He died just a few days after this. You could say these are his last uh, public words. So this is a really beautiful image, right? Uh, somebody who sees their life, life from a great altitude, but not in a detached way, in a way where they see the interconnection of all the parts. They also feel like they're not done, and they feel like they're ready to go, and they're scared. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's very, very human. Yeah. So I feel like this is a good example of uh, the entirety of spiritual practice, and meditation practice in particular. In meditation practice, we are uh, cultivating uh, the ability to be stable uh, and to be calm with whatever is showing up in our life. Did you hear that? (laughs) So we can really meet what's happening. It doesn't mean we're not scared. It doesn't mean we can't see the big picture. It doesn't mean sometimes um, we're crazy. But that we have a trust that there's a deeper sanity than the insanity of our reactivity. And that stability is also what allows us not just to connect to the deepest parts of ourselves, but also allows us to connect with the deeper part of other people. So meditation is cultivating our compassion circuitry. It's knowing that we have the wiring to have a perception, to have an experience beyond just a separate self. Us as singled off over here, like corporations want us to be. Lonely and isolated and wanting to buy things to get grounded. In traditional uh, Buddhist teachings, there are five kinds of fear. The first is uh, called Abhinivesha, which is it's very interesting. It's not just the fear of death. It's the fear that I am going to die. Because most of us, when we contemplate death, it's not so much that the body is going to die. It's that this me that I'm so invested in and like all the people I hate (laughs) and like all the stuff I've done like it's going and actually because they say we're in the era of dementia that like most of us are losing this before death right is all these things we've held on to these memories that define us it's going to slip away The second fear is a loss of livelihood, that you won't have um, something to do that's meaningful. This is the second fear that the Buddha taught. The third is a loss of reputation. 
going to talk a little more about. The fourth is uh, the fear that there are natural and supernatural events that you cannot control, aside from children. So this would be like everything from a tsunami to getting bitten by a strange um, bug. Um, And the fifth one, which I think is actually hilarious, is uh, speaking in public. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the, the fifth fear is speaking in public. So I wanted to uh, use a Western psychological lens to explore those a little bit because um, in uh, clinical practice, there are sort of two fears that show up a lot when people come into psychotherapy that are, uh, are, uh, uh, um, I don't want to say stuck, but kind of paralyzed by fear. the first cluster is the fear that something is wrong. Usually something wrong with themselves. That deep down there is something that is wrong with me, how I'm wired. And the other fear is the fear that something is missing. Something is missing. Deep down something is missing. And we know that that experience of something missing is incredible for a growth-based economy. Because if something's missing, then you have to go get that thing that's going to fill that hole. And it's interesting that consumerism has, like if you mapped it, consumerism has increased in a similar way that our belief in romantic love has increased. You could map those things together. Because if I get that dress or that car or that retirement fund, I'll be grounded. Mm -hmm. And it's the same logic as if I find that one person, then I will be okay. It's not to say that the dress isn't awesome. It's not to say that a car can't be really enjoyable. It's not to say that another person can't really enrich your life. But it's when we turn to these things out of fear or out of grasping to solve something that's missing, we actually are going to reinforce the fear circuitry, which I'm going to get into a little bit more. So when fear is activated, the empathic part of our brain is deactivated. So when you're scared, you're not going to be thinking much about other people. You're concerned mostly with yourself. So when you think about people who are scared all the time, it's really important to have a practice so that that can be balanced in a way where we can also still be connected to the experience of others. So, these two clusters. Something's wrong. You follow? Something's missing. Okay? And of course, there's acronyms for all of these things, and I really love these acronyms. So the first one is called FOF. F-O-F, which is fear of failure. 
Faf. Let's say it, Faf. Faf. Yeah, it's Hebrew, actually. (laughs) The second one is fear of missing out, FOMO. (laughs) FOMO, yeah. Isn't that so good? Don't you feel sophisticated when you say, maybe not the Faf, but the FOMO. It's like, oh yeah, that's FOMO. So I just want to call out some sort of examples of these, because I think we can relate to almost all of them. So uh, fear of failure is the sense that no matter what, you're always going to fall short. (coughs) You're going to let down uh, somebody you love. You're going to let down a colleague. You're going to let down uh, the way that a community believes in you. And this can bring a tremendous amount of isolation uh, and shame. Because shame is this experience that somewhere deep in you, um, there's something bad. Lots of people uh, in the public eye have what's called imposter syndrome. And I've been interested, I've been reading lately a little bit about... um, Uh, people who are performing artists who develop stage fright much later in their careers, which is very common. Um, Some of you know that uh, the highest selling record of all time right now is uh, this singer from England named Adele. Adele? Yeah. Yeah, she sold like, uh, I can't remember... Her, her single came out and sold like an insane amount, like I want to say 20 million copies or something. She's 28 years old. Um, and uh, in an interview with her, she says that every time she gets on stage or gets in public or is going to perform, she feels like people are going to see the real her and leave. So this is someone like at the top of um, her game right now. And every single time she performs, she feels this. So, primarily, if we don't, if we're not in a situation where we're in a life or death moment, then um, that life and death uh, flip or oscillation happens to our personalities. It gets internalized. So, for example, if you're in a culture that's always rating you. Right? then you're going to internalize this kind of insecurity. And you'll probably never feel like you're enough. So that's why I think of Oliver Sacks, you know, his parents saying, you're an abomination. And then what does he do? He internalizes it. He internalizes it. So we have strategies to cover this up when we feel this kind of fear. And the one most people turn to is... Uh, To pretend. To pretend that we don't really have this sense that we can fail right there behind the scenes. Another one is we dissociate or split from our own needs and we just try and satisfy other people. Because if I forget about myself, then maybe if I satisfy you so much, my fear will go away. I won't be able to fail because I'll be keeping you fed all the time. (laughs) And 
the last one that I think everybody knows who's Jewish is trying to prove yourself or get approval. I think this is a popular water that we drink from <laughs> in Jewish culture. And when you're always trying to get approval, you're cut off from a, a sense of belonging. So imagine a community where everyone's trying to get approval. <laughs> What's there to belong to? So think about you, either yourself or somebody you know who has this in a strong way, this fear of failure, fof. How that manifests. You could ask yourself, you know, where, where do I feel the fear of falling short? Is it in certain relationships? Or are there certain actions that you don't do because you're scared that uh, people will lose their respect for you? Or even their love for you. They won't love you. Or are you someone that's anticipating rejection? To begin with. One of the tricks to working with fear of failure is to see that um, the fear that's arising is just fear. And this is a very important piece of the Buddhist tradition, is that nothing belongs to me and mine. Nothing. So when fear arises, we don't personalize it. It's just the fear. Oh, there's the fear. So imagine you're in a meditative state, in a mindful state, and fear starts to arise. And as soon as you go, oh, I'm scared, it's over. You've identified with it, you're scared. But instead, we're with our breathing, and we see, oh, the fear. Fear is arising. Mm -hmm. And we don't refer the fear back to a me. We just let the fear be there, noticing the fear. Oh, there's the fear. There's that fantasy that they're going to leave me if I say what I really feel. The second cluster is, uh, should we say it out loud? What's it called? FOMO. The fear of missing out. Um, being afraid of missing out is most of the time being scared that you're going to miss out on pleasure. This is biological. Human beings want pleasure. You can see this in dogs, right? Watch a dog in the morning. You wake up and the dog's already figuring out what they can do for the pleasure of eating. Yeah? They don't want to miss out. And we're wired like this, too. Um, maybe we'll miss out on money or a new technology or some peak experience 
or some really deep teaching. And so we occupy ourselves worried that we're going to miss out on something. The depend the, this is dependent also on our kind of genetic and familiar wiring. Because um, when you're young, you have certain needs that your parents can't meet. It's impossible. And those unmet needs really form the structure of your personality, especially in terms of how you do relationships. And so what happens is we end up having a spectrum of emotions, needs, and feelings, um, and uh, sensations, that when they show up, we don't really know how to work with them. We don't know how to work with them. So, for example, maybe you have, uh, when you feel angry, uh, you don't know how to work with a certain spectrum of anger. You can only work with a sliver of anger. It's an example. So, what we're learning about in meditative practice is how to sit, and whatever's showing up in awareness, we're going to breathe with it and make a space for it, whatever's showing up. The problem is, when certain clusters of emotion show up like fear, they have so many sensations attached to them. So many sensations attached to them. And that all comes through our wiring, our caregiving, our ancestry, our belief system, our gender, all of this. These are all the filters that our fear comes through. So that's why it's really important that when fear arises, we're able to name it, to know, oh, there's fear. And then to be able to not personalize it. So we can actually feel what's happening with a little bit of space, rather than the tendency, which is reactivity. And when we react to fear unconsciously, we always make bad choices. Or marriages. (laughs) The truth is, is that um, when you're reactive and when you're scared, um, what you're missing is the fact that what you really want is actually right here. Your home and your sanity is not separate than this moment. But we convince ourselves because of our habits. Um, We need to find our satisfaction elsewhere. So what the Buddhist perspective offers is uh, this encouragement that whatever's showing up, you can contact. You can have the courage to initiate intimacy 
with whatever's showing up in your moment-to-moment experience. No. Sometimes that means you might need other support, like maybe you need other people there, or you need a good enough room, or a safe enough space. But that you're encouraged to make contact with what's showing up in your moment-to-moment experience. Secondly, that you can hold whatever's showing up with a very kind mind. That's not personalizing it. And then last, that you can not hold on to it. Some of us, we're actually good at making contact. Oh yeah, there's like fear and I can get into it. But we don't know how to let it go. It's just we get obsessed with it. And then 10 years later, we're still in psychoanalysis. Which is very expensive, by the way. So you just dip your breath into fear. And then you pull your breath out. You dip your breath into the fear, you pull it out. Imagine that there was a a bowl of dye, and you had a white cloth, and you dipped the cloth into the dye, you pulled it out, the cloth was a little richer. So this is what's happening. And every time you put the cloth into the dye, the dye um, becomes less and less intense. And the same is true with fear. Every time you take your breath into the fear, your breath then absorbs the fear, but your breath dissipates the fear. And that bowl of fear, or that body of fear, that the breath is dipping into, becomes less and less potent. And to my mind, this is exactly the same thing that uh, the Jewish perspective is offering. Is that we can all rest in something much larger. Much larger. But we get caught in this narrowness. The aperture closes. So we can be afraid but we can be afraid and open up. And anyways, what is the true fear behind all of these fears? Behind FOMO, behind FOF, behind public speaking, behind livelihood issues. What is the deepest fear? There are many times in the Torah where when God is about to speak, God says, uh, don't be afraid. So I've been thinking about this a lot and getting some clarity. The rabbi. Um, And one of the things I've been thinking about is when God says, don't be afraid, um, immediately my thought is, afraid of what? Well, afraid of God. 
don't be afraid. Well, who are you afraid of? We're afraid of reality. <laughs> Said another way, I would say that the thing we crave the most is connection. That's what we crave the most. We want to be connected to something bigger than the narrative we have about our lives. We want to feel connected to something bigger than just our own story about what life is, what I am, who you are. But what we fear the most is being connected to something larger because it totally screws up all our stories that we have. Like, if you want to suffer, have relationships. <laughs> and deep, intimate relationships. Because in intimate relationships, the other person, if they love you, is not going to let you maintain the story you have about them. Nobody wants to just be a story. So isn't this interesting? And doesn't this mirror what happens in sitting meditation? Most people don't love to sit in meditation practice. They like the idea. And they read a lot of books about it. <laughs> and one of the reasons is, if you sit, you're actually going to sit with reality. Not with the reality that you think is reality. Oh, I have this idea of what's spiritual, and I'm just going to sit with that. Well, if you sit for a while, it's not going to be that. <laughs> so in a way, maybe the fear behind all of these fears is the fear of intimacy. The fear of actually being connected to something that is not you and is totally you. But not the you you think is you. It's interesting how much time we spend living the life that we think we should be living. Fantasizing about what we've missed or what we're missing right now. It seems to take up an enormous portion of our psyche. It's interesting that when you sit in meditation practice and I say, feel your breathing, maybe you feel the breath a little bit and then the attention goes way off. Has this happened for anybody? <laughs> the attention goes way off. Living a life that you're not living. The uh, child psychoanalyst, and he's Jewish, uh, Adam Phillips uh, writes, we refer to them as our unlived lives because somewhere we believe that they were open to us. But for some reason, and we might spend a great deal of our lived lives trying to find and give the reason, they were not possible. And so use this time to let fear in. We're so lucky. 
This is such a safe place. And the weather is like asking us to be introverted. Maybe forcing us to be introverted. We are missing out on summer, actually. Let's just be honest. Um, So, I encourage you to really drop into this practice. Being in the present moment. Breathing in, breathing out. Slowing down. And tuning into what's really going on for you. Yesterday, during the walking meditation, I said, let 80% of the experience be internal and just 20% out here. Okay. See if you can do that uh, today, all day. Really just staying in this experience, it's worth it. To interrupt some of the layers of habit that we have that, that keep us out of our innermost experience. And then I promise I will offer more suggestions tomorrow for how to transform fear into something much greater. So thank you. <laughs>